Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Tonight's reading comes from The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, originally written in 1782 by Edward Gibbon Esquire. This book ended up comprising six volumes and is considered a classic of historical literature. My name is Teddy, and I am to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important, and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. The podcast is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Thank you to everyone who shared their words of gratitude with me during the week. A huge thank you to new Patreon supporter, Hope Whitman. I also appreciate your kind message and will continue to bring out many more episodes to help you and others relax and get a good night's rest. Your support on Patreon allows me to do that, and I'm appreciative of that. Thank you also to listeners who reached out via the website. To Elodi, I'm glad the podcast helps temper any anxieties that you may have at night. To Rooney, I'm sorry to hear that you've struggled with insomnia for so long. I'm incredibly grateful that this podcast has the ability to help you get the rest that you deserve. To Instagram users, Mick Moll, thanks for sending through the quick and kind message before you dozed off. Gregor Longson, I'm glad you and your partner get benefit from the podcast. Tonight's episode is actually based on one of your suggestions. I hope you enjoy it. All Spotify listeners, thanks for continuing to respond to the Q&A and letting me know what you thought about the episode of your choice. If you find the podcast beneficial, one way to help is to leave a review in your podcast app. Even one sentence helps out. And if you would like to become a patron or sponsor, please visit boytosleep.com. Dot com. Whether it's $1 or $5, your monthly contribution allows me to bring out more episodes for those who need them. If you would like, you're always welcome to say hello to me at boytosleep.com. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at boytosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax and enjoy the readings. The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire Edward Gibbon, Esquire Originally written in 1782 and revised and published in 1845 Preface of the Author It is not my intention to detain the reader 
by expatiating on the variety or the importance of the subject which I have undertaken to treat since the merit of the choice would serve to render the weakness of the execution still more apparent and still less excusable. But as I have presumed to lay before the public a first volume, only one of the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, it will perhaps be expected that I should explain in a few words the nature and limits of my general plan. The memorable series of revolutions which in the course of about 13 centuries gradually undermined and at length destroyed the solid fabric of human greatness may with some propriety be divided into the three following periods. 1. The first of these periods may be traced from the age of Trajan and the Antonines, when the Roman monarchy, having attained its full strength and maturity, began to verge towards its decline, and will extend to the subversion of the Western Empire by the barbarians of Germany and Scythia, the rude ancestors of the most polished nations of modern Europe. This extraordinary revolution which subjected Rome to the power of a Gothic conqueror was completed about the beginning of the 6th century. The second period of the decline and fall of Rome may be supposed to commence with the reign of Justinian, who by his laws as well as by his victories restored a transient splendour to the Eastern Empire. It will comprehend the invasion of Italy by the Lombards, the conquest of the Asiatic and African provinces by the Arabs, who embraced the religion of Mahomet, the revolts of the Roman people against the feeble princes of Constantinople, and the elevation of Charlemagne, who in the year 800 established the second or German Empire of the West. The last and longest of these periods includes about six centuries and a half, from the revival of the Western Empire till the taking of Constantinople by the Turks and the extinction of a degenerate race of princes who continued to assume the titles of Caesar and Augustus after their dominions were contracted to the limits of a single city, in which the language, as well as manners, of the ancient Romans had been long since forgotten. The writer who should undertake to relate the events of this period would find himself obliged to enter into the general history of the Crusades, as far as they contributed to the ruin of the Greek Empire, and he would scarcely be able to restrain his curiosity from making some inquiry into the state of the city of Rome during the darkness and confusion of the Middle Ages.
as I have ventured, perhaps too hastily, to commit to the press a work which in every sense of the word deserves to be the epithet of imperfect. I consider myself as contracting an engagement to finish, most probably in a second volume, 2A, the first of these memorable periods, and to deliver to the public the complete history of the decline and fall of Rome, from the age of the Antonines to the subversion of the Western Empire. With regard to the subsequent periods, though, I may entertain some hopes. I dare not presume to give any assurances. The execution of the extensive plan which I have described would connect the ancient and modern history of the world, but it would require many years of health, of leisure, and of perseverance. Chapter 1. The Extent of the Empire and the Age of the Antonines. Part 1. In the second century of the Christian era, the empire of Rome comprehended the fairest part of the earth and the most civilized portion of mankind. The frontiers of that extensive monarchy were guarded by ancient renown and disciplined valor. The gentle but powerful influence of laws and manners had gradually cemented the union of the provinces. Their peaceful inhabitants enjoyed and abused the advantages of wealth and luxury. The image of a free constitution was preserved with decent reverence. The Roman Senate appeared to possess the sovereign authority and devolved on the emperors all the executive powers of government. During a happy period of more than fourscore years, the public administration was conducted by the virtue and abilities of Nerva, Trajan and Hadrian, and the two Antonines. It is the design of this, and of the two succeeding chapters, to describe the prosperous condition of their empire, and afterwards, from the death of Marcus Antoninus, to deduce the most important circumstances of its decline and fall, a revolution which will ever be remembered, and is still felt by the nations of the earth. The principal conquests of the Romans were achieved under the Republic, and the emperors for the most part were satisfied with preserving those dominions which had been acquired by the policy of the Senate. The active emulations of the consuls and the martial enthusiasm of the people. The seven first centuries were filled with a rapid succession of triumphs, which it was reserved for Augustus to relinquish the ambitious design of subduing the whole earth, and to introduce a spirit of moderation into the public councils. Inclined by peace to his temper and situation, it was easy for him to discover that Rome, in her present exalted situation, 
had much less to hope than to fear from the chance of arms, and that, in the prosecution of remote wars, the undertaking became every day more difficult, the event more doubtful, and the possession more precarious and less beneficial. The experience of Augustus added weight to these salutary reflections, and effectually convinced him that, by the prudent vigour of his counsels, it would be easy to secure every concession which the safety or the dignity of Rome might require from the most formidable barbarians. Instead of exposing his person and his legions to the arrows of the Parthians, he obtained by an honourable treaty the restitution of the standards and prisoners which had been taken in the defeat of Crassus. His generals, in the early part of his reign, attempted the reduction of Ethiopia and Arabia Felix. They marched near a thousand miles to the south of the tropic, but the heat of the climate soon repelled the invaders and protected the unwarlike natives of those sequestered regions. The northern countries of Europe scarcely deserved the expense and labour of conquest. The forests and morasses of Germany were filled with a hardy race of barbarians who despised life when it was separated from freedom, and though on the first attack they seemed to yield the weight of the Roman power. They soon, by a single act of despair, regained their independence and reminded Augustus of the vicissitude of fortune. On the death of that emperor, his testament was publicly read in the Senate. He bequeathed as a valuable legacy to his successors the advice of confining the empire within those limits, which nature seemed to have placed at its permanent bulwarks and boundaries. On the west, the Atlantic Ocean, the Rhine and Danube on the north, the Euphrates on the east, and towards the south, the sandy deserts of Arabia and Africa, Happily for the response of mankind, the moderate system recommended by the wisdom of Augustus was adopted by the fears and vices of his immediate successors. Engaged in the pursuit of pleasure or in the exercise of tyranny, the first Caesars seldom showed themselves to the armies or to the provinces, nor were they disposed to suffer and those triumphs which their indolence neglected should be usurped by the conduct and valour of their lieutenants. The military fame of a subject was considered as an insolent invasion of the imperial prerogative, and it became the duty, as well as interest, of every Roman general to guard the frontiers entrusted to his care without aspiring to conquests which might have proved no less fatal to himself than to the vanquished barbarians.
The only accession which the Roman Empire received during the first century of the Christian era was the province of Britain. In this single instance, the successors of Caesar and Augustus were persuaded to follow the example of the former rather than the precept of the latter. The proximity of its situation to the coast of Gaul seemed to invite their arms. The pleasing though doubtful intelligence of a pearl fishery attracted their avarice, and as Britain was viewed in the light of a distinct and insulated world, the conquest scarcely formed any exception to the general system of continental measures. After a war of about 40 years, undertaken by the most stupid, maintained by the most dissolute, and terminated by the most timid of all the emperors, the far greater part of the island submitted to the Roman yoke. The various tribes of Britain possessed valour without conduct, and the love of freedom without the spirit of union. They took up arms with savage fierceness. They laid them down or turned them against each other with wild inconsistency. And while they fought singly, they were successively subdued. Neither the fortitude of Caracatus, nor the despair of Boadicea, nor the fanaticism of the Druids could avert the slavery of their country or resist the steady progress of the imperial generals who maintained the national glory when the throne was disgraced by the weakest or the most vicious of mankind. At the very time when Domitian, confined to his palace, felt the terrors which he inspired, his legions under the command of the virtuous Agricola defeated the collected force of the Caledonians at the foot of the Grampian Hills, and his fleets, venturing to explore an unknown and dangerous navigation, displayed the Roman arms round every part of the island. The conquest of Britain was considered as already achieved, and it was the design of Agricola to complete and ensure his success by the easy reduction of Ireland, for which, in his opinion, one legion and a few auxiliaries were sufficient. The Western Isle might be improved into a valuable possession, and the Britons would fear their chains with less reluctance if the prospect and example of freedom were on every side removed before their eyes. But the superior merit of Agricola soon occasioned his removal from the government of Britain, and forever disappointed this rational, though extensive, scheme of conquest. Before his departure, the prudent general had provided for security as well as for dominion, he had observed that the island is almost divided into two unequal parts by the opposite gulfs, or as they are now called, the Friths of Scotland, 
across the narrow interval of about 40 miles, he had drawn a line of military stations, which was afterwards fortified in the reign of Antonius Pius by a turf rampart erected on foundations of stone. This wall of Antoninus, at a small distance beyond the modern cities of Edinburgh and Glasgow, was fixed as the limits of the Roman province. The native Caledonians preserved in the northern extremity of the island their wild independence, for which they were not less indebted to their poverty than to their valour. Their incursions were frequently repelled and chastised, but their country was never subdued. The masters of the fairest and most wealthy climates of the globe turned with contempt from gloomy hills assailed by the winter tempest, from lakes concealed in a blue mist, and from cold and lonely heaths over which the deer of the forest were chased by a troop of naked barbarians. Such was the state of the Roman frontiers, and such the maxims of imperial policy, from the death of Augustus to the accession of Trajan. That virtuous and active prince had received the education of a soldier, and possessed the talents of a general. The peaceful system of his predecessors was interrupted by scenes of war and conquest, and the legions, after a long interval, beheld a military emperor at their head. The first exploits of Trajan were against the Dacians, and most warlike of men, who dwelt beyond the Danube, and who, during the reign of Domitian, had insulted with impunity the majesty of Rome, To the strength and fierceness of barbarians, they added a contempt for life, which was derived from a warm persuasion of the immortality and transmigration of the soul. Disorbalus, the Dacian king, approved himself a rival not unworthy of Trajan, nor did he despair of his own and the public fortune, till by the confession of his enemies... He had exhausted every resource, both of valour and policy. This memorable war, with a very short suspension of hostilities, lasted five years and, as the emperor could exert without control, the whole force of the state, it was terminated by an absolute submission of the barbarians. The new province of Dacia, which formed a second exception to the precept of Augustus, was about 1,900 miles in circumference. Its natural boundaries were the Nister, the Tais, and the Tabiscus, the Lower Danube, and the Euxine Sea. The vestiges of a military road may still be traced from the banks of the Danube to the neighbourhood of Bender, a place famous in modern history, and the actual frontier of the Turkish and Russian empires. Trajan was ambitious of fame, and as long as mankind shall continue to bestow more liberal applause on their destroyers 
than on their benefactors. The first of military glory will ever be the vice of the most exalted characters. The praises of Alexander, transmitted by a succession of poets and historians, had kindled a dangerous emulation in the mind of Trajan. Like him, the Roman emperor undertook an expedition against the nations of the east, but he lamented with a sigh that his advanced age scarcely left him any hopes of equaling the renown of the son of Philip. Yet the success of Trajan, however transient, was rapid and spacious. The degenerate Parthians, broken by intestine discord, fled before his arms. He descended the river Tigris in triumph from the mountains of Armenia to the Persian Gulf. He enjoyed the honour of being the first, as he was the last of the Roman generals, whoever navigated that remote sea. His fleets ravaged the coast of Arabia, and Trajan vainly flattered himself that he was approaching towards the confines of India. Every day, the astonished Senate received the intelligence of new names and new nations that acknowledged his sway. They were informed that the kings of Bosphorus, Colchos, Iberia, Albania, Osorn, and even the Parthian monarch himself had accepted their diadems from the hands of the emperor, that the independent tribes of the Median and Calcutian hills had implored his protection, and that the rich countries of Armenia, Mesopotamia, and Assyria were reduced into the state of provinces. But the death of Trajan soon clouded the splendid prospect, and it was justly to be dreaded that so many distant nations would throw off the accustomed yoke when they were no longer restrained by the powerful hand which had imposed it. It was ancient tradition that when the capital was founded by one of the Roman kings, the god Terminus, who presided over boundaries and was represented, according to the fashion of that age, by a large stone, alone among all the inferior deities, refused to yield his place to Jupiter himself. A favourable inference was drawn from his obstinacy, which was interpreted by the augurs as a sure presage that the boundaries of the Roman power would never receive. And during many ages, the prediction, as it is usual, contributed to its own accomplishment. But though Terminus had resisted the majesty of Jupiter, he submitted to the authority of the emperor Hadrian, the resignation of all the eastern conquests of Trajan was the first measure of his reign. He restored to the Parthians the election of an independent sovereign, withdrew the Roman garrisons from the provinces of Armenia, Mesopotamia and Assyria, and in compliance with the precept of Augustus, once more established the Euphrates, as the frontier of the empire. Censure, 
which arraigns the public actions and the private motives of princes, has ascribed to envy a conduct which might be attributed to the prudence and moderation of Hadrian. The various character of that emperor, capable by turns of the meanest and the most generous sentiments, may afford some colour to the suspicion. It was, however, scarcely in his power to place the superiority of his predecessor in a more conspicuous light than by thus confessing himself unequal to the task of defending the conquests of Trajan. The martial and ambitious spirit of Trajan formed a very singular contrast with the moderation of his successor. The restless activity of Hadrian was not less remarkable when compared with the gentle response of Antonius Pius. The life of the former was almost a perpetual journey, and he possessed the various talents of the soldier, the statesman, and the scholar. He gratified his curiosity in the discharge of his duty, Careless of the difference of seasons and of climates, he marched on foot and bareheaded over the snows of Caledonia and the sultry plains of the Upper Egypt. Nor was there a province of the empire which, in the course of his reign, was not honoured with the presence of the monarch. But the tranquil life of Antonius Pius was spent in the bosom of Italy, and during the twenty-three years that he directed the public administration, the longest journeys of that amiable prince extended no farther than from his palace in Rome to the retirement of his Lenuvian villa. Notwithstanding this difference in their personal conduct, The general system of Augustus was equally adopted and uniformly pursued by Hadrian and by the two Antonines. They persisted in the design of maintaining the dignity of the empire without attempting to enlarge its limits. By every honourable expedient, they invited the friendship of the barbarians and endeavoured to convince mankind that the Roman power, raised above the temptation of conquest, was actuated only by the love of order and justice. During a long period of forty-three years, their virtuous labours were crowned with success, and if we accept a few slight hostilities that served to exercise the legions of the frontier, The reigns of Hadrian and Antoninus Pius offer the fair prospect of universal peace. The Roman name was revered among the most remote nations of the earth. The fiercest barbarians frequently submitted their differences to the arbitration of the emperor, and we are informed by a contemporary historian that he had seen ambassadors who were refused the honour which they came to solicit of being admitted into the rank of subjects. The terror of the Roman arms added weight and dignity to the moderation of the emperors. 
they preserved peace by a constant preparation for war, and while justice regulated their conduct, they announced to the nations of their confines that they were as little deposed to endure as to offer an injury. The military strength, which it had been sufficient for Hadrian and the elder Antoninus to display, was exerted against the Parthians and the Germans by the Emperor Marcus. The hostilities of the barbarians provoked the resentment of that philosophic monarch, and in the prosecution of a just defence, Marcus and his generals obtained many signal victories, both on the Euphrates and on the Danube, the military establishment of the Roman Empire, which thus assured either its tranquillity or success will now become the proper and important object of our attention. In the purer ages of the Commonwealth, the use of arms was reserved for those ranks of citizens who had the country to love, a property to defend, and some share in enacting those laws which it was their interest as well as duty to maintain. But in proportion as the public freedom was lost in extent of conquest, war was gradually improved into an art, and degraded into a trade. The legions themselves, even at the time they were recruited in the most distant provinces, were supposed to consist of Roman citizens. That distinction was generally considered either as a legal qualification or as a proper recompense for the soldier, but a more serious regard was paid to the essential merit of age, strength and military stature. In all levies, a just preference was given to the climates of the north over those of the south. The race of men born to the exercise of arms was sought for in the country rather than in cities, and it was very reasonably presumed that the hardy occupations of smiths, carpenters and huntsmen would supply more vigour and resolution than the sedentary trades which are employed in the service of luxury. After every qualification of property had been laid aside, the armies of the Roman emperors were still commanded, for the most part, by officers of liberal birth and education, but the common soldiers, like the mercenary troops of modern Europe, were drawn from the meanest and very frequently from the most profligate of mankind. That public virtue, which among the ancients was denominated patriotism, is derived from a strong sense of our own interest in the preservation and prosperity of the free government of which we are members. Such a sentiment, which had rendered the legions of the Republic almost invincible, could make but a very feeble impression on the mercenary servants of the despotic prince and it became necessary to supply that defect by other motives of a different but not less forcible nature, honour and religion. The peasant or mechanic, 
imbibed by the useful prejudice that he was advanced to the more dignified profession of arms, in which his rank and reputation would depend on his own valour, and that, although the prowess of a private soldier must often escape the notice of fame, his own behaviour might sometimes confer glory or disgrace on the company, the legion, or even the army to those whose honours he was with associated. And that concludes tonight's readings. I hope you've enjoyed listening to this story, but I also hope that you're feeling a little drowsy. If you're not quite tired yet, please feel free to listen to another episode of the Boy Asleep podcast. Until next time, good night.